2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. You may be seated. I think one of the wonderful... One of the wonderful benefits of expository preaching, exegetical preaching, is that you got to cover everything, right? It's like you don't get to pick and choose and say, well, we won't cover that. That's just a list of names, right? Nothing really much in that. Oh, my goodness, y'all. There's so much in there, I left four verses out by accident. But we'll get to them. I promise we will. Um, what, what a joy it has been to work through Second Timothy, and hard for me to believe that, that we're finishing today. We <clears throat> worked our way through the pastoral epistles, First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, but we did it First Timothy, Titus, Second Timothy, and I'm glad we kept Second Timothy back for last because this was the last recorded, set down, passed down letter that Paul ever wrote. Um, He may have written more letters, but we don't know what they are or where they are. These are the last words, the last written words of the Apostle Paul. And I love the fact, and we'll cover this for sure, that it's focused on people. Paul loved people. The church is made up of people. And so we could just skip by this list of names and seemingly meaningless instructions, but God's got other plans. And the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these words so that we could study them, so that we could, 2,000 years later, benefit from them. And I believe <clears throat> that every word of God is profitable. Every, every, every iota, every jot, every tittle is profitable for us, for teaching, for approval, for training in righteousness, including this. <clears throat> and I, I really, ooh, it really is profitable. So let's, let's get into it. Verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. There's your memory work. Everybody memorize 2 Timothy 4, 9. I'm just, you, you can do your best to come to me soon. You just memorized it. Congratulations. <clears throat> so what's funny to me about this, and I don't know if it's funny, not like funny ha-ha, but like odd, strange, We left off from last week, and if you remember, man, last week was triumph, right? Triumph and passion and glory and crowns and an eternal perspective that was redounding to the praise of the Almighty God. I'm already being poured out. The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And the crown of righteousness is laid up for me and all of God's people. Yo, Adrian, I did it, we said, right? The crowd cheers, fists pump, tears of joy flow. And now the very next verse. Do your best to come to me soon. 
<laughs> What's what kind of feels anticlimactic? I mean, I'm thinking <clears throat> following this, we get a list of names of people who either Paul has sent somewhere or people who've left or let Paul down. And I'm just thinking, dude, Paul, just praise God after verse 9 and say, praise God, period, right? Let's be done. Wouldn't it make more sense? Wouldn't it make us feel better? Well, Paul lived in a real world. And while he definitely had that eternal perspective we spoke of last week, he was still in a stinky hole in the ground with 30 or more other prisoners awaiting his beheading. And in that real world, in this specific moment, look at this. Paul wanted to see Timothy. And we'll see that it's for a lot of reasons, but at the very basic root of it all, Paul wanted to see his friend. Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. It drips with emotion. It's a very personal appeal. Timothy, brother, child in the faith, friend, co-laborer, the one I'm handing this torch off to, do your best to come to me soon. So we've definitely come back into a very time-centered view, haven't we? And that's important. Because while we have precious promises to cling to and to look forward to, it's always still now, right? And sometimes, now is good. Think about Lord of the Rings and Boromir and Faramir in the movie. And they just fought a hard battle and they won and they defended us Giliath. And they're standing there and he's like, bring out the ale, these men are thirsty. Everybody's celebrating wounded people. And he looks at Faramir and he says, remember today, little brother. Today, things are good. Sometimes, now... It's good. It's happy. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you're in a hole in the ground waiting for your beheading. Sometimes it's a struggle. Sometimes it's sad. Sometimes it's everything in between those extremes, right? And here in Paul's right now, praise God he's going to bring us all into his eternal kingdom. The crown of righteousness laid up. But right now, Timothy, my plea is for you, my friend, to come to me soon. Do your best. That's a good, solid Christian exhortation, isn't it? Now, we may sneer at it and say, well, Jesus doesn't want my best. Only his best is good enough. But don't be that person. We live in a physical world that requires effort on your part, on my part. Grace-driven effort, for sure, for believers. But we need to do our best. It's a good goal. And it's a good way to urge others on. Here, do your best, Timothy. Make it happen. You do everything you can do. To do what? To come to Paul soon. Whatever you have to do to get here to me as soon as you can, that. Do that, Timothy. I want you to clear your schedule. I want you to make the arrangements. I want you to set the travel plans. And I want you to set your jaw to get here ASAP. I had a boss that used to say, don't tell me why it can't be done. Tell me how you're going to do it. (laughs) Whatever logistics that may entail, and let me tell you, in first century Rome, they had a great road system, but that was still going to be hard for Timothy to get from Ephesus to Rome. Let me show you why. Ephesus, Rome. If you just hop on I-77 and go north, then you can pick up I-64. Nope, nope, that ain't going to work. You're going to end up at the water. Um, If you hop on a boat, yeesh, good luck. Do your best, Timothy. Make whatever plans you got to make. Buy whatever tickets you got to buy. Sell what you got to sell. Get here soon. This is not a leisurely jaunt from Ephesus to Rome, but work it out, Timothy. Make it happen. And why? Now, you talk about a tough thought. Let me tell you why Paul is telling Timothy to do his best to get there quickly. Verse 10. Ooh. 
For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For, because all the guys who were with me are gone. There were people here, and now there's not. And technically Luke's there. We'll see that in the next verse. But Paul mentions three guys here that were there, but they aren't anymore. And the first one's really heartbreaking. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Demas, but we do have two passages that he's mentioned in. Colossians 4.14 says, Paul says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas, as he writes to the Colossians. He's telling the church there at Colossae that two of his co-workers greet them, Luke and Demas. And in Philemon 23 and 24, Paul says this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. In both passages, it's clear that Demas is with Paul in his labors wherever he's gone to these points. Maybe not everywhere, but he's been with them a lot. So Demas had spent a lot of time with Paul and was familiar with people in different places as one of Paul's co-workers in the gospel ministry. Oh yeah, Demas. He runs with Paul. He's doing that gospel ministry thing. But here, Paul says Demas is not with him in Rome anymore, but has gone to Thessalonica. And that's all that he said. We, we might think, well, Paul must have needed something done at the church in Thessalonica. But his wording is clear. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Ouch. We don't know, we don't have specifics here, right? But Demas has given up the gospel ministry, it seems, to pursue the pleasures of the evil age that he was alive in. Again, nothing specific. And people are like, well, maybe it was this. We don't know what it was. And if Scripture don't tell us, we don't need to know. But it's clear that he has said no, Demas has, to self-sacrifice and ministry in order to pursue the fleeting pleasures of the world. It's interesting that the word for world here that means the created order, or the word that's usually used for world is cosmos, and it means the created order or the physical world, but the word that Paul uses here is really age. It's the Greek word A-I-O-N, we would say eon, which means a period of time, an age. And that implies that Demas has given up on thoughts or focus on eternity and his chosen pleasure now, in this time, in this age. His treasures, in contrast to the teachings of Jesus, were in this moth-ridden, thief-infested world or age. <clears throat> he was in with the eat and drink today because tomorrow we die crowd, is what it seems. And Paul is clear that this choice was made and it resulted in Demas deserting Paul. And the word for deserted implies to leave in dire straits, to leave or abandon someone in a helpless situation. Demas had been there for Paul, but chose to leave Paul helpless to pursue the pleasures of the current age. It's awful. And it seems that Paul's heartbroken over it. So, please, Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. Demas deserted me. He then mentions two other guys, Crescens and Titus. Crescens we know nothing about from the Scriptures outside of this reference. Crescens had gone to Galatia. Galatia is a region, it's not a city. And we know that Paul had written a letter to the Galatians. Um, And there are churches in that region. Did Paul send Crescens there? Was it scheduled for him to go there? We don't know. It doesn't say. But Crescens had been there, now he's not. He's in Galatia. Titus had gone to Dalmatia. He needed a dog, obviously. He was a fireman, I don't don't know. Uh, We know Titus. We spent some weeks in Paul's letter to him in this pastoral epistle series. 
And we last saw him in that book on the island of Crete, where Paul had left him to appoint elders and set the churches straight in the towns on that island. And it seems to me that both Crescens and Titus were on ministry assignments. That's how it feels to me. Since Paul doesn't mention them deserting him or choosing pleasure like he did Demas. He singles Demas out. Demas deserted me in love with the present world. Either way, these three guys had been there with Paul, it seems, and now they're all gone. Demas deserting him, Crescens and Titus going to different places, whether it was assigned or not. All being said, Paul, who once had companions to encourage him during his imprisonment and impending death, now does not. They're gone. That's why he urges Timothy to come to him as soon as he can. It's really sad. Please come to me as soon as you can. Everybody's gone. Ever been alone? Ever been deserted? Somebody ever let you down and left you by yourself? My mom and dad left me at summer camp one summer. They deserted me there. I'm not, I'm not bitter, though. It was supposed to be a two-week camp. I went home after a week, by the way. They said, you can't come home. I'm like, my bag's packed, and it's in the car. You're taking me home. Anyway, <clears throat> sad stuff. Verse 11, though, gives a little hope and some unexpected connection for Paul. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Aha, Paul isn't completely alone. Luke alone is with me. To me, it's, Luke's kind of that guy you just take for granted. He's always there, no doubt. Yeah, but I mean, Luke's here. I mean, of course Luke's here. Right, Luke? <laughs> and yes, this is the Luke who wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, which, by the way, is a little over half of your New Testament. And Luke wrote them both to one person, a man named Theophilus. Ah, Luke. That gives us a little insight into who Luke is, right? He had joined Paul in Troas on Paul's second missionary journey. He was called the beloved physician by Paul in that reference we saw back in Colossians 4.14. So we know he was a doctor. And if you're Paul, it's awfully handy to have a doctor around consistently. I mean, you get stoned and left for dead. You get beaten, whipped, mobbed and such. And while we don't know if Luke was always with Paul from the time they met or not, he had become a fixture of sorts in Paul's roaming band of ministers. Luke alone is with me. I mean, of course, Luke's the guy that's going to be there. Seems he was saying, of course Luke's with me, but, but he's the only one. And then watch this. Paul then tells Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Okay. I mean, Paul's looking for ministers, right? He needs people who can help him. But who's Mark? Well, Mark had accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their very first missionary journey that Paul had made. But when Paul and Barnabas were headed out for their second journey, we see this in Acts 15, verses 37 to 40. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers by the grace of the Lord. So Mark had been a source of division between Paul and Barnabas because on that first journey he quit. They got to Pamphylia and Mark's like, guys, I, I really need, I want to go home. Paul's like, psh, 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 quitter. You probably left summer camp early or something. <laughs> he started and didn't finish what he started. So on the second journey, Barnabas said, hey, let's take Mark. And Paul's like, nope, I don't think so. And they couldn't agree about it. Paul and Barnabas, these men of God, these apostles... And they couldn't agree about it, and they split up. Paul took Silas, and I can kind of see him looking at Mark over his shoulder going, Psh, go ahead and take Mark, Barnabas, if that's what you want to do. But we don't see much about Mark again until here at the end of Paul's life. And what does he say? Get Mark and bring him with you, Timothy. Why? For he is very useful to me for ministry. Huh. Now keep in mind... We're quite a few years later here during Paul's imprisonment at the end of his life than when Mark had left the team. Oh, there's grace, y'all. 
And apparently in that in-between time, Paul has heard that Mark is ministering. He's serving. He's being faithful. Maybe they've even come face to face. Maybe they've hugged and made up and, you know, had Reese cups together or something. Because that's what you do when you make up with people. So here, near the end of his life, Paul calls for Timothy to bring Mark with him when he comes. Isn't that beautiful? I didn't want him on my team on that second journey, but now, all these years later, he's, quote, very useful to me for ministry. Wow, that's so awesome. It's redemption, it's restoration, it's reconciliation. You ever just really goofed up and you thought, man, man, I've blown it. Ain't no hope for me now. Oh, the scripture screams, there's hope. There's restoration and reconciliation. Redemption. Paul has heard of what Mark was doing. And here in this time, as he's thinking through processes, Paul says, you know what? Mark could really help me now. So Paul has plans for this guy whom he had given up on years ago. And those plans involve ministry opportunities that Paul sees Mark as very useful to carry out. In this stinking hole in the ground, Paul's thinking about this guy that he split up with all those years ago. And he's like, Yes, he's very useful to me. Timothy, bring him with you. That's wonderful stuff right there. Verse 12. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Isn't that fun to say? Another memory verse. There you go, 412. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Do your best to come to me soon. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Tychicus is mentioned in Acts 20, verse 4, Ephesians 6, 21, Colossians 4, 7, and Titus 3, 12. In the Ephesians and the Colossians verses, he, both times he's called a beloved brother and a faithful minister. Now that's high praise from the Apostle Paul, right? Well, here Paul says that he has sent this beloved brother and faithful minister to Ephesus. But wait a minute, isn't Ephesus where Timothy is? Could it be that Paul was sending Tychicus to take over for Timothy so Timothy can come to him? Makes sense. Again, he doesn't say that specifically. But he says, Timothy, I need you out of Ephesus. I need you with me. I'm going to send a faithful guy to fill in for you. And I'm I'm sure Timothy was like, shoo, I'm glad he's sending Tychicus because that guy is a faithful minister and a beloved brother. Always good to have those faithful and beloved guys around to get things done in it. May it be said of all of us, faithful man, beloved minister, yeah. Now, passage turns a bit from people to, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. I love this verse. I love it. You're like, that's weird. I'm weird. So we, we, we turn from people to a cloak, some books, and the parchments. When you come, Timothy, I need you to pack a bag and bring some things, okay? Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Now, you know what a cloak is, right? It's a heavy-duty coat. It's an overcoat, really. It's an outer garment that would be used to shield somebody against tough weather, sometimes even being used to sleep in when warmth was needed. It was like a, you're wearing a sleeping bag, kind of. All being said, Paul is either cold or preparing to be cold. He will say later that he wants Timothy to make every effort to get to him before winter. Winter's coming. And Paul says, um, bring my coat. Now, don't run past that too quickly. What would you do? Say you went on vacation. Now, Paul's not on vacation. But you get somewhere and it's 50 degrees and you're expecting it to be in the 80s. What would you do? You didn't pack a coat. What would you do? Walmart, here I come. I need me a coat, y'all. Thank you, Sam Walton. Well, it would seem that Paul had one coat. And it was in Troas, about 400 or more miles from Rome. With no easy way to get there. He's in a hole in the ground chained to probably another stinky man. And no availability to just go get another one. So, hey, Tim, it would be great to have my one coat when you come. 
Now, what would put Timothy on a detour from Ephesus? Check this out. This is a terrible map, but it's the only one I could find that really had everything I looked for. So Ephesus is, well, I can't even see it here. Uh, wow, I really can't see Anyway, Asia Minor here at the yellowish thing, okay? What would take him from Ephesus down south up to Troas, which is up north, and then to Rome? It'd be easier just to leave from Ephesus and sail to Rome, right? But Paul's saying, no, go up to Troas, get my coat and the books and the parchments, and then make your way to Rome. So it's not just 400 or more miles from Rome. It's a detour to go up north and then make your way to Rome. It's not convenient. It's not the most direct way. But that one coat was going to be worth all that trouble come winter. And Paul says, also the books and above all the parchments. So yeah, the cloak, but it seems there's some books and parchments Paul left behind too. Was he arrested at Troas without a chance to get his stuff? That's possible. Very possible. But Paul's asking for books. Well, of course he is. He's a preacher. (laughs) He's a teacher. And preachers and teachers love him some books. Trust me. He didn't have an iPad to carry his library around on. And we don't know what these books were specifically, but Paul, who obviously had some time on his hands, could really use some books in that time. And above all, he says, the parchments. Hmm. Now what's he talking about here? Many think that he's referring to writing tools or older writings that were on parchments instead of books. The books would cover reading materials and parchments were usually for writing. Again, they didn't just have notebooks or a notes app to use. I'll type this out and forward it to Timothy. So in his time, listen, waiting to die, Paul wanted to read and Paul wanted to write. I love that. This guy just does not stop. This is the end of the line. I'm at the end of a dead end road. Bring me some books. Bring me some writing stuff so I can be busy and employed while I'm down here. He's still grinding it out, doing the work that he can do. He don't have a date of execution. He knows his time has come, but he's like, hey, while I'm here, might as well read and write. Reading and writing to help the church and to fill his time constructively. A cloak to stay warm and books and parchments to stay busy. That's who Paul was. Now 14 and 15. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Now Paul turns his attention to someone who's caused him problems for him and his ministry. He refers to a man named Alexander who was a coppersmith. Those smiths, there's such trouble. We're not sure who this is definitively, but Paul had mentioned an Alexander in 1 Timothy 1.20 calling him a false teacher. He says that he might learn not to blaspheme him and his buddy Hymenaeus. This could be the same guy, but we don't know that. We also don't know what he did or how he contested Paul in the ministry, but Paul says it did him great harm. And so, does Paul tell Timothy to snuff this guy out? Hey, when I leave, Tim... Fit him with some concrete shoes and drop him in the Dead Sea, okay? No? Hey, that was pretty good, y'all. That was kind of important. Thank you. (laughs) He doesn't call for him to be taken out. He entrusts judgment of this harm doer, this troublemaker, to God. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He does tell Timothy to beware of him due to Alexander's strong opposition to their message, but he entrusts judgment to God at the end. He would say in Romans, leave room for the wrath of God, for vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He doesn't say to contend with him. He doesn't say to argue with him. He doesn't say fight for your rights against him. And he doesn't say whine because of him. No, it's just beware And then see what God does when He settles accounts with every person on that last day. People will oppose you and the ministry and the message. Beware of them, 
But trust God to judge them in the end. You're not the judge. 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Wow. Paul here refers back to when he was on trial before his imprisonment, basically the trial that put him in prison, calling it his first defense. The word for first defense is apologia. And it was when an accused person laid out the case for why they were not guilty. When Paul showed up for that first hearing, nobody came to support him. Nobody. I don't even think Luke was there. And not only did they not show up, they deserted him. Now we saw that word earlier, Demas deserted him. Here, in reference to his first trial, everyone, everyone deserted Paul. And he was all alone. So he's like, I'll get those sons of guns, right? You think he's bitter? Look at what he says. Regarding all those folks who deserted me, Paul says, may it not be charged against them. Wow. Now, Paul doesn't hold it against them. And in the spirit of his Savior, he asked that it not be charged against them. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus says, hanging from a cross. And Paul, deserted at his first trial, says, don't let it be charged against them. Wow. Paul has the perspective of Jesus himself. And it's pretty awesome. Listen. Everybody listening? Forgiveness in the face of being wronged marks the Christian. It's very Christ-like. I don't know that you can do anything more Christ-like than forgive people. I don't submit yourself to abuse. That's not what I'm saying. But if somebody wronged you, whether they're sorry or not, forgive them. And pray to God for them. Don't hold it against them. And help me to not hold it against them. Forgiveness in the face of being wronged marks the Christian. But Paul also knows something that makes that easier to display. Verse 17. But the Lord stood by me. And strengthen me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Oh, this verse. Woo! This is a gem. Paul was deserted by everyone he knew and everyone he loved in the flesh. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, he says. Paul was not alone. He says he knows that the Lord himself, Jesus, the Christ, stood by him and strengthened him. Now, Jesus was not there in a physical body. Jesus is seated in the heavenlies on the throne. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Paul got the strength that he needed from the very presence of Jesus there in that courtroom. Why would Paul say that? Why would Jesus help Paul in this trial? And he got better things to do? I mean, he's got to reign and rule, right? What did he have to gain, Jesus, in that proceeding? So that through me, Paul says, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Aha! Jesus strengthened Paul because Paul was carrying the gospel message about Jesus And here he gets to share it before all these Gentile leaders who very well may not have heard it to this point. They're hostile to it, actually. John MacArthur says that Nero himself may have been present at that first trial, the way they do things there in these first trials. And God had promised Paul back in Acts 27-24 when they're about to be shipwrecked, don't be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. Yeah, God had his word at stake here. So Jesus himself came and stood by Paul and strengthened him so that Caesar himself possibly heard the true, full, Christ-centered gospel message. The message! That's why Jesus came, stood by him and strengthened him. The message was delivered and so was Paul. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth, he says. Now he could be speaking... Literally here, they did feed Christians the lions sometimes. So at that first trial, they could have just said, throw him in the, in the gladiator pit, let him be eaten. He might mean that. He might be making a reference, like a Daniel reference. 
right? Daniel, who was delivered literally from the lion's mouth. Either way, Paul's saying he was delivered from trouble, from danger by God himself in his first trial. Of course, it also could be a reference to the devil whom Peter says in his letter roams about like a roaring lion. Either way, through it all, Paul was kept from immediate death and got through that first trial by the strength of Christ himself for the sake of the message about that same Christ. And now watch this next statement. Out of all the verses, this is the one. Oh, man. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a verse. So Paul had credited Jesus with standing by him and strengthening him in his first trial. But here he says that that trial was just one instance out of many past, present, and future instances where he was delivered. He says the Lord will rescue him from every evil deed and bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. It's a statement of faith in God's ability to rescue him and to keep him safe. Amen, right? But hold on. Where's Paul again? In a hole in the ground, literally awaiting execution. So is he saying, God's going to get me out of this hole? I'm going to be set free because God delivers me out of all these dangers. He's going to rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. We saw last week that Paul said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. So then what's this rescue from every evil deed and bringing him safely through talk? Is he delusional under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Albeit, no, of course not. Listen, this rescue, this safe trip is to heaven. And it's not a reference to a get-out-of-jail-free card or a pass from current problems or a promise of prosperity in the face of persecution. He just knows, like we said last week, That his eternity is secured. And that God himself is superintending every single nanosecond of his life. Eternally secure. You betcha he was. Couldn't be any more secure than Paul was here on death row. Crazy, right? (laughs) And Paul can't help but worship when he gives voice to this realization. He says that, then he says, to him be the glory forever and ever, amen. And I can just imagine him right in the middle of the night and just saying it out loud. And all the prisoners are saying, shut up. He's like, amen. In this stinky Roman prison, packed in with killers and thieves, Paul ascribes eternal glory to God for who he is and what he's doing and what he will do. It's amazing. Amen, he says, so be it. Yes, indeed. Again, a great way to end a letter, but we ain't done yet. 19 and 20, which I don't have up there because I literally, in my brain, stopped at 18. Sorry, trust me, it's in there. Follow along in your Bible or your app if you got one, verses 19 and 20. Greek Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. So Paul tells Timothy to greet some folks as he begins his journey to Rome. Greet Prisca and Aquila, he says. We meet this ministering couple in Acts 18 on Paul's second missionary journey when he comes to Corinth and sought them out because he had heard that they, like him, were tent makers. Then later in Acts 18, we see them in Ephesus. So they've gone from Corinth to Ephesus. And in Ephesus, they're helping to teach and encourage a guy named Apollos who needed some fine-tuning in his message. He was preaching, and he was eloquent, and he was bold. But they're like, ah, you don't have all the details, right? Let us help you there. Well, it would seem that they planted there in Ephesus since Paul is telling Timothy to greet them because that's where Timothy's at in Ephesus. 
He also says to greet the household of Onesiphorus. Y'all remember him? We met him back in 2 Timothy 1.16. Onesiphorus had ministered to Paul during his imprisonment. Paul saying he had refreshed him often. Onesiphorus had refreshed Paul often. We also said that it was possible that Onesiphorus had been killed in these ministering efforts. And maybe here Paul is telling Timothy to greet Onesiphorus' household and not Onesiphorus himself because maybe he wasn't around anymore. And we don't know that for sure, but it's very possible. And he does make it a point to have Timothy greet whoever was left in that household. Paul then mentions Erastus, who he says remained at Corinth, and that's all we know about Erastus. He's in Corinth. Paul then brings up a guy named Trophimus. This fellow is listed as Paul's traveling companions, one of Paul's traveling companions in Acts 20. And in Acts 21, he's called Trophimus the Ephesian. And they say that he had been in the temple in Jerusalem with Paul. Well, here Paul says that in their travels, he had left Trophimus in Miletus, a city just south of Ephesus, and he left him there because Trophimus was ill. Sorry about that, Trophimus. Did you get tested? He's at one of them super spreader events. That's where he... but, but hold on a second. Who's he traveling with? Who's Trophimus traveling with? Paul. The Apostle Paul. Paul's worked some miracles, right? Cast out demons. He's healed people. That kid that fell out of the window while Paul preached all night might have been dead and Paul might have brought him back to life. So Paul, man, miracles, right? Come on, bro, Paul. He's ill? Fix that. Heal him, for goodness sake. Heal him, man. You're going to leave him because he's ill? Isn't that funny? Sometimes God doesn't heal us. Some of y'all know that very intimately and personally, right? Sometimes the will of God is not to heal you. It was definitely God's plan for Trophimus. Because Paul determined we're going to have to leave him here. He's sick. Sometimes the plan of God is not to heal us. Trophimus, who was ill, I left at Miletus. Verse 21. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. That's a mouthful there. There's that do your best thing again. Come on, Timothy, I'm pushing here. You need to know that I need you to do your part as soon as you can. If you wait till winter comes, you won't be able to travel. Ain't no boats that can bear you hence. And then he mentions four people whose names are particular and peculiar, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia. These are new local Roman friends, names that are clearly Roman. So Paul has come in contact with some local people here whom he refers to as brothers. They're believers in the local fellowship of the church there in Rome. They might have read Paul's letter to the Romans. And they said, it's always now. And there's no condemnation. And they said, sign me up, right? They're believers in the local fellowship. So that's really encouraging as he wrestles with abandonment and loneliness. Because here's the deal. It really seems like when God takes some people out of your life, he's bringing more in. It also means love the people you're with. We'll talk about that in a minute. So he's really encouraged here as he wrestles with abandonment and loneliness. And he sends their greetings to Timothy as a way to say, Hey, come on, there's a new gang that's all here. And I can't wait for you to meet and work with them too. And now finally, the very last sentences we have recorded from the great apostle Paul. Verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Paul, in closing this letter to his friend and confidant, and in closing what would be the last letter the Holy Spirit wanted us to have from him, 
says two things. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Paul prays that the Lord, the one who stood by him and strengthened him in his first trial, the Lord who has carried him thus far and who will bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom, the Lord be with your spirit, Timothy. Note that is spirit. He doesn't say, I pray that you're well. He doesn't say, I hope God keeps you safe and keeps you from harm. His last prayer is fellowship for Timothy with God in his spirit. We fellowship with God in our spirits. Now our bodies are useful and they're being redeemed. But God's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. The inner man is where the real communion with God happens. Working himself and his power out through our souls and then out through our bodies. Paul is not here asking for physical comfort or even physical help, but that which is of first importance. The Lord be with your spirit. If that's happening, the outer works, though tested and tried, will persevere. And then, of course, the last recorded words of the Apostle Paul are grace be with you. Paul can think of nothing greater to bestow upon his readers than grace. And if you'll remember that definition of grace, that merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. Yeah, that's a pretty good closing hope and prayer for Timothy. But not just Timothy, that's actually a plural your which assumes that others will read this letter either out loud through Timothy or recorded in Holy Scripture for us. Grace be with you. Us, church, God's people. Period. The words of the Apostle Paul are finished. We're going to look at one, two, three, four, five points of application. M's menial, which is fun to say. Men, mayhem, message, master. Menial, men, mayhem, message, master. Menial. Don't miss God in the mundane. And don't miss the fact that God's plan includes the mundane. Little moments, small tasks, boring days. They're all part of God's plan. And what's our calling in the midst of it? Do your best. If it's boring and easy, well then we should really be able to do it well, right? So do your best. I've got a little theory. On a scale of 0 to 10, 0 being I don't want to be alive anymore, 10 being this is the greatest experience of my life, where do you think you spend the bulk of your time in your life? At 10? God help you. You're an adrenaline junkie. You got issues. You got problems. My theory is that we spend most of our lives, I would say, and this is a number that just 75% of our lives, in the four to six. Are you going to redeem that four to six? Or are you waiting for a ten? Everything's got to be a ten. Seems the younger generation wants everything to be a zero. It's terrible. It's awful. Let's redeem the four to six. Let's redeem your job. Let's redeem sitting on the couch at home with your family. Let's redeem mowing the grass, eating a hamburger. You ever just ate a hamburger and said, that was a 10? (laughs) Woo! I love burger! 
burgers. <laughs> You're probably going to get a six out of a burger. That's about it. And that's okay. Right? Here's the problem. Especially in our culture today. We need to focus on reality. Not virtual reality. Not an online presence. Right here, right now. And it's always now. Don't miss God in the mundane. We watched Up last night. And I literally was going to quote this anyway. And like literally, I'm almost at this point and it comes on. Russell, the little boy, is talking to Mr. Fredrickson. And he's talking about what he did with his dad. He said, we used to sit on a curb and we'd count cars. He'd get red cars, I'd get blue cars. I don't remember the specifics. And he said, it sounds boring, but I like that curb. It might sound boring, but I think the boring stuff is the stuff I remember most. That's really good. Chris Rice has a song called Power of a Moment. And he says, I get so distracted by my bigger schemes. Show me the importance of the simple things, like a word, a seed, a thorn, a nail, and a cup of cold water. Seventy-five percent of your life is words, seeds, thorns, nails, and a cup of cold water. Redeem them. Engage them. And that was a four. Praise God. The menial. Paul sitting in a stinking hole in Rome, and he ain't missing God in it. Don't miss God in the moment, in the menial. Menial. Now, men. The people in your life. God has always had you in community with people, whether you wanted to be or not. And God's always going to have you in community with people whether you want to be or not. And God's plan involves people. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. Count the one another's in the New Testament. There's a lot of them. Love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, one another, one another, one another. And here's the deal. Not all the people that God has in your life are good ones. There's bad ones. There's faithful ones. There's ones that abandon you and let you down. There's old ones. There's new ones. And every single one of them are part of God's plan for your life. You are not sitting here this morning by accident. You don't live where you live by accident. You don't work where you work by accident. You weren't brought into the family you were brought into by accident. God said, these are the people that I'm going to use to shape and form you. We want to shake our fist at God and say, why are these people? I mean, Jason, for goodness sake. 17 specific people mentioned in this passage besides Paul and Timothy. And again, you've got to love the people-loving, people-serving, people-employing Paul. And here's what I would say. Engage with the people in your life. Especially sitting in this building this morning. As you have opportunity to do good to all men, especially those of the household of the faith. Stop looking for other people to be engaged with. Stop looking for a better friend. Stop looking for somebody that you like better. Stop looking for somebody who's more compatible with you. And engage Engage in your family, in your home. Engage in your neighborhood. and Engage in your work. And I love the fact that Paul is a networker. He'd have been a great pyramid scheme guy, right? <laughs> Paul entrusted Timothy, entrusted faithful men. He'll teach others also. Look, his downline was phenomenal. And in the midst of it all, some of those people are going to let you down. And newsflash, you're going to let them down too. We love them, we discipline them out of that love, and we're always looking for restoration. Sometimes it'll happen, sometimes it won't. Some people in your circle, in your sphere, will oppose you. 
What are you supposed to do? Beware of them and trust that God will take care of it all in the last day. Preach the gospel to them, pray for them, and trust God to sort it all out. I love here Paul at the end is letting Timothy know where all the people are that he'll need to be engaged with. This guy's here, this guy's here, this guy's here. There's new people here. This guy was trouble. Watch out for him. Come to me. John MacArthur says, People are the greatest treasure, the greatest commodity that we have. Yes. So menial men, now mayhem. Not the all-state guy. Listen. Sometimes life is crazy hard. I wish somebody would have set me down at 14 and said, Jason, life is hard. And I'd be like, okay, whatever. Can I go now? I wouldn't have listened, but that seed would have been planted. Listen to me, everybody that can hear my voice right now, life is hard. It's really been the theme of this whole book, truthfully. Life's hard, suffer well. Sometimes our circumstances and our situations seem like they're spiraling out of control. Here's hard application, don't wish that away. The lion's mouth is a great opportunity for God to show himself and to draw you closer to him. Hard, suffering, mayhem are all paths to greater intimacy with the one sovereign over it all. That I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. Menial men, mayhem, and now message. That the message might be fully proclaimed. In the midst of the menial, and in the midst of all the people and the men that are around us, in the midst of the mayhem, the goal is to preach the gospel. It was Paul's goal. He says it lines up with God's goal. And so therefore it's to be our goal. Now listen, reality check. Is it the main goal and aim of your life to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? We like to receive it. I'm saved. Ooh, heaven, yes. But I, I can't help but see that the scripture says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And how can they hear unless somebody preaches it? The point of your family is to share the gospel with them. The point of your work is to share the gospel with your coworkers. The point of your community is to share the gospel with your community. The point of this church is that we might share the gospel with each other, equipping and mobilizing the saints to impact the ends of the earth until the end of time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message is the main thing. You're like, what about my personal relationship with Jesus? That's good. But the purpose of that relationship is that you might proclaim Him. You're like, why are you scowling? I don't know. It's for effect. I'm convicted is why I'm scowling. Because I think most often I'm more interested in building my kingdom than proclaiming Jesus's. It's bad, buddy. I know what you're saying. The message, and proclaiming the message, the true message, the full message, the pure message, the biblical message, the gospel, is to be the goal of our lives. That's why Paul could say, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith because he had proclaimed that gospel all through his converted life. That's the goal. Finally, master. My deliverer is coming my deliverer is standing by listen to me 
our deliverer, will rescue us from every evil deed and will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's the good news. It's hard. It's mayhem. There's some cruddy people we got to deal with on the way. And some good ones. Gets boring and menial. And I'm kind of scared to share the gospel. Listen, listen. The master is superintending every single bit of it. The Lord stood by me. The Lord will deliver me. The master is the master of it all. Me, you, us, them, his enemies, the past, the present, the future. Eternity past, eternity future. Jesus Christ is the master of it all. And he will rescue me from every evil deed. And he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And the crown of righteousness is stored up for me on that day when he appears. Sometimes he calms the storm, right? Sometimes he floats with you a day and the night in the deep. Sometimes you sink to the bottom and don't come back up. And he's still master of every single bit of it. Squire Parsons. Anybody a fan of Squire Parsons? West Virginia guy. WB. We had an old cassette tape, Squire Parsons' Greatest Hits. And I won't echo him, but I want to read this as we finish. One night upon the sea, a ship was tossing to and fro. Breakers dashed on every hand. Angry winds around them blowed. All on board were filled with fright as the mighty billows rolled. Then they called upon the one who the winds and waves controlled. And then this chorus. When he reaches down his hand, billows cease at his command. Wind and waves obey his will when he says to them, be still. What man is this, they all did say, that the wind and sea obey? He's the one who sails with me. He's the master of the sea. Yeah. Yeah, that's the master that we're talking about. He stood with me. He stood by me. He will deliver me. He's laid up a crown for me. And he is the master of every single moment and every single person and every single circumstance and situation in my life. Sovereign in the mountain air. Sovereign on the ocean floor. And though you slay me, I'm going to hope in you because you're the master. And one day, every person will give an account to Jesus Christ for the deeds that they have done in the body. Those who are His will receive rewards for the good things that He has done through them. Those who aren't His, He will repay them according to their deeds, just like He will Alexander the coppersmith. And the only escape from the full vent of the wrath of God is to place your faith in the finished work of the master of the sea. To look at the cross of Calvary and see God in the flesh hanging there, bearing the penalty for your sins, and saying, God, I believe that that was sufficient and that you accepted his sacrifice as payment for the penalty for my sins so that he might be the one who sails with you, that he might be your master. Your loving, powerful, serving, gracious master, whom the winds and the sea obey. May that grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you reached down your hand. And I thank you that in the midst of the menial, the boring, the hard, the scary, the mayhem, the good and the bad people, those who stick with us and those who abandon us, those who abuse us and those who lift us up. That you are the master of it all and you have proclaimed a message of grace over your people that you would have us proclaim to all those who haven't heard or who haven't obeyed the truth of that gospel yet. Father, may we be faithful like Paul was faithful. May we be faithful like Timothy was faithful. God, may we do our best empowered by your spirit to proclaim this great message and to see your kingdom established here on the earth as it is in heaven. 
so that you get all the praise and the glory because it all belongs to you anyway. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this place. And we ask you to bless us and may the seed of this word produce fruit a hundredfold in our lives. And may your Holy Spirit draw those who don't know you to himself so that they might believe and receive the gift of the grace of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to pray for Becca before we conclude. So, um, Becca, would you come stand up here? Steve, Don, Bob, you guys want to come up and gather around her? I'd ask y'all to come, but that just wouldn't work. Pray in agreement with us. and I won't ask Steve to pray because I don't know if I don't want to put that. You'll be praying for her anyway. So. Don, Bob, will you pray for Becca and conclude us and then I'll read a benediction and we'll be done. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.